On Sunday mornings this term, we're going to study together the book of Romans. And the plan is that by the beginning of Advent, we'll get as far as halfway through chapter 8. And then after a break for the spring term, when as a whole church, we will study 1 Timothy Sundays and in small groups, we'll come back to the second half of Romans in the summer term. Now, I want to encourage you, and I'll recommend some books. Some of you enjoy uh, reading along with the series. I'll do that next week. I want to encourage you to catch up online with sermons you miss. None of us, I suspect, will be here for the whole series. Uh, The preachers won't uh, always be here. They'll be here when they're preaching. But uh, none of us, and that's typical of contemporary church, will be here every Sunday. And uh, we try to make the sermons available as accessibly as possible so we can catch up. Why is this important? Well, it's important because Romans is a logical book. Paul sets his argument out a bit like a barrister or an advocate. Another reason, though, it is helpful to keep up with the series is because our church life this year will be determined or influenced more than anything else by what is preached on a Sunday. Chalmers, like every local church, is led by Christ through his word. And so the big Bible books you study, whether it be Romans or Matthew or Ruth, this term will shape and determine and lead us and influence us as a church in the decisions we make. Now today, we read chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And uh, if you've got a church Bible, um, there should be a page number for you, 939. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who has descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's another of Paul's long sentences. To all those in Rome, this is who he's writing to, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, 
that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, and thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we pray in Luther's words that as we study this great book, there would be a breakthrough in our understanding of the gospel message. For the first time, or to clarify and deepen our understanding not of the complexity of the gospel, but its simplicity. How wonderful it is. We pray the gospel would break through in our experience of the gospel life, the righteous living by faith. We pray that the biggest questions, the biggest doubts we have, will be addressed and answered by our understanding of the gospel. And may our meditation on these marvelous things glorify you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, two headings on the service sheet. That's our normal pattern to put some headings on the service sheet. The message of Romans confidence in the gospel, and much more. Just to say, if you happen to glance at heading number two, it is a little scary. It's not. Uh, And uh, this week, uh, some of our maps threatened to take a a photo of it and send it to Andy Robertson to show them a 12-point alliteration sermon. (laughs) Andy used to be with us and uh, loved his alliteration. Now, the second heading is not scary. All I've done is taken the verse, verses 16 and 17 and broken into its logic step by step, and we'll race through that towards the, the end. Now, let me just uh, build up from the bottom with Romans to get some facts clear. The author is the Apostle Paul. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul refers to him being set apart. He is referring to his calling and to his commission to be a preacher of the gospel. It's worth saying that in large swathes of the church, including sections of the evangelical church, 
the Apostle Paul's writing has been marginalised. And yet, Paul gives us the clearest, strongest, most pastorally applied teaching on the gospel in the New Testament. The letter is written to the church in Rome. Just glance at chapter 1, verse 7. To all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Just note immediately that the application of the letter is corporate. Romans is a great letter for me and for you as individuals. It is full of wonderful gospel truth. But the letter is written to all the saints in Rome, to the church in Rome. There's a corporateness to it. There's a a benefit in mutual study of Romans within a church context like ours. Paul longs to see them, chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 1, verse 13. But he can't for all sorts of reasons. So he writes the letter to the Romans. Now, he's not writing to a church with all sorts of problems. It is very different in character from, for example, a letter like 1 Corinthians, where Paul addresses all sorts of issues and problems in a church. By contrast, the church in Rome is strong. Look at chapter 1, verse 8, for example. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And Paul doesn't kind of say stuff and then... He's truthful. I thank my God for you, the Christians in Rome, the church in Rome, for your faith is proclaimed all over the world. Your example is proclaimed all over the world. The church in Rome understands and believes the true gospel. They are living it out. Now, just flick forward to chapter 15, the end of the letter. It's good to look at the bookends, the beginning and the end, like letters you write. The best letters tell people what they're going to say at the beginning and then tell them what they thought they'd said at the end. Chapter 15, verse 14, is the beginning of the end of the letter. Although Paul's concluding remarks and final greetings are not brief, I love the end of the letters, all these names. It just means this is real. Paul had partnerships, he had contacts, he had relationships. Um, It's like an email chain at the end of the letter. Read with me chapter 15, verse 13. This is the bridge into the end of the letter. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's the conclusion of the substantive part of the letter. Verse 14, chapter 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But in some points I have written to you very boldly, my way of uh, reminder... I wonder if Paul was tempted, um, and I'm sure this can be consistent with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write, but in some points I have written to you very briefly. But he didn't have the confidence to write that because he's not brief. Now, the point of this is for us to see that he's not writing to a church with problems. He's writing to a really strong church. He's writing to a church that understands and believes the true gospel and that is living it out. And to that church, Paul writes at length about the gospel. Now, is that really necessary? Paul seems to think so. I mean, he's always eager to preach the gospel. 
but he's eager to preach the gospel and to write this long letter about the gospel to this strong church. Chapter 1, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. And that's what this letter is. It is a grand proclamation of the gospel to a church that is committed to the gospel and living it out. Now, how excited are you about Romans? These are moments when you love that preaching is silent dialogue. How excited are you, really? Honestly, come on. In a church like Chalmers, don't we know the gospel? Are we not committed to living it out? Would it not be more profitable at the start of this new academic year, at the start of this new building, at the start of this exciting period in our church life, to look at strategy for evangelism, training, or planting, or have a series on mission, or focus on the practicalities of day-to-day life as Christians? And of course, there is a place for that next term. We're on 1 Timothy, which is our motto series, a practical letter about God's household, the church, how it should be led, how it should be ordered, what it should be like. But all of that strategy, practical, applied stuff is underpinned by a right understanding, by confidence in the gospel. Strategy for evangelism is easy. You tell people about Jesus. Confidence in evangelism is elusive. Strategy for training is easy. You find people, you find some money to train them, and you put them in a room. But what are you training them in? And moreover, our vision for gospel strategy, whether planting a global mission, is always the gospel. The most visionary people for the gospel are the people who understand and live with the depths of the gospel in their minds and hearts. The most visionary person I think I've ever met was George Verwer, the fellow who founded Operation Mobilization. He came to stay in our house one night in Palmerston Road, and he had a a, a kind of, well, scribe-stroke-slave who over dinner, he said, my assistant is going to stay up all night and work while I go to bed. And that man, George Verwer, with all of his idiosyncrasies and eccentricities, just knew the gospel inside out. It permeated every bone. People remember him, I think, for the vision of Operation Mobilization to take the gospel to the world. But at the heart of that, was a man who knew the gospel thoroughly. What's Paul's strategy for mission and evangelism? A deep, deep knowledge of the gospel. Now, it is true, I think, that we can have as Christians, as a church, a real understanding of the gospel, but at a superficial level. And let me encourage you that the desire for a deeper understanding of the gospel is not an intellectual quest, nor is it beyond any of us to grasp its depth. It is not beyond a child to grasp the depths of the gospel. It is not beyond somebody who has little education 
to grasp the depths of the gospel. That is one of the great marks of the Reformation. There is no special revelation for special Christians to really wrestle with the gospel. You can be a professor of a theology and not know the gospel. Our quest is to appreciate its depth, its significance, to find a deeper joy, a deeper assurance, a deeper peace, a deeper wonder at the wonderful gospel of Jesus that we might be able to say, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. Now, I'm not an effusive person who you will find saying, isn't Jesus really wonderful? Or isn't the gospel amazing? But I want Romans to find people in this church like me who are not naturally wired that way, who will conclude that the gospel really is wonderful, astonishing, reassuring, perfect. And we will find ourselves saying, with Paul in Romans 11, or oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. The studying Romans will bring profound comfort to us pastorally with all the struggles we face in our lives. God will minister to us through this book. To those of you who struggle with doubt, to those of you who lack assurance, to those of you who live with guilt, to those who with all their hearts believe they are saved by faith but do not allow themselves to live by faith, to those who have received by faith the righteousness of God in Jesus but do not feel any different, to those whose battle with sin is destroying them, to those who are afraid of suffering and death, to those who are suffering and dying to those who think they have no part to play in the life of a church, the Holy Spirit will take these words and work them into every soul as our comforter. And of all these comforts, the most profound comfort may come to somebody here or somebody listening online. And you know who you are listening online, close to faith, but not yet there. The greatest of comfort is that salvation may come into your home by the Holy Spirit and into your heart. Now, that's kind of whetting our appetite for Romans. If I was to give a kind of summary of the message of Romans, it would be confidence in the gospel. Confidence in is the language Paul uses. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Strengthen you. Strength. See, that's striking, isn't it? That Paul explains the gospel to give us strength, confidence. Chapter 1, verse 12. That you might be encouraged by each other's faith. Chapter 15, verse 13, that you might abound in hope. Chapter 16, verse 25, that you might be strengthened. Beginning and end of the letter, that you might be strengthened. Confidence in the gospel, which leads to much more, to unity. 
to mission. Now, if confidence in the gospel is the key message of Romans, what does that mean? What does it mean to be confident in the gospel? Let me give you a trailer of what's to come. Just to have your finger ready to flick. Here's a trailer of what's to come. Chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 4, verse 25, Paul explains how the gospel perfectly meets the greatest need we have as human beings. Now, over the course of the next two or three Sundays, one of you said to me, the next two or three Sundays are going to be rather gloomy, which is why um, I've asked Rog to preach. Paul's line of the next two or three Sundays is all these people out there need the gospel and all these people in here need the gospel. And all the good people need the gospel and all the people that are religious need the gospel. In fact, conclusion, chapter 3, verse 20, all of us are unrighteous before the righteousness of God. They are good Sundays because you cannot have confidence in the gospel until you have no confidence in yourself before God. You cannot be filled until you are empty. They're great chapters. And true confidence in the gospel comes, I think, as much as anything else from realizing how desperately we need it. And only then do we find ourselves having confidence, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, in that the gospel meets that need perfectly. It's a wonderful solution to a desperate plight. It's not a neat fix. It's a loving answer to an urgent need. Now, the fact that the gospel deals perfectly with our greatest problem gives us such confidence in the gospel. Now, in chapter 5, Paul turns to another area of confidence busting. That's a phrase that uh, Keller, I think, uses. The kind of things that life chucks at the gospel and chucks at you because you believe it that makes you think it's not true. Number one, chapter 5. I do not feel any different now that I am a Christian from how I did before. So when Chris Taylor became a Christian recently in church, he said to me a few weeks after he became a Christian, I'm a little worried that I don't feel any different. I don't feel any different. I don't look any different. No one's saying to me when they see me, you're a Christian. Now that will come, I guess. To which Paul answers in chapter 5, you may not feel different, but you are. You are now at peace with God. Now, this is important. It's worth saying now as well as in depth later on. Peace with God is not a subjective feeling or an experience as much as it is an objective fact. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That does not mean 
that we cannot and do not at times experience and feel a profound sense of peace. After all, in Philippians, Paul says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Sometimes in church when we sing, sometimes I feel the peace of God guarding my heart. That's subjective. That's experiential. But oftentimes, oftentimes, we need to know that it is true because we do not feel that it is true. That's why Paul says, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One of the toughest illnesses that people bear, in my view, is depressive illness. One of the things that depressive illness does is rob people of subjective feelings of good or worth. And again and again, they will say to me, I cannot be a Christian because I do not feel anything from God. I do not feel what they feel. And my answer to them is, knowing Jesus and the peace of God is an objective fact. And many people know it in their minds, but not in their hearts. You see how real and relevant and powerful Romans is? How much Christianity is based on subjective experience? Now, that's not wrong. There are times in church when I want to lift up my hands. That would shock you, wouldn't it? As my children say, I do it in my sermons all the time. Do it here, but we can't do it when we sing. There are times when you are carried along by the Spirit within you. And you know God's peace. But most of the time, you know it in your head, but do not feel it in your life. Paul says, don't let that rob you of assurance. Chapter 5 is wonderful. He says, you have peace with God and you're a new humanity. Chapter 6 through to the middle of chapter 8. Now there's a big chunk. Chapter 6, chapter 7 through to the middle of chapter 8. There are some difficult bits in that. I think we'll get Sam to preach on them. The problem in chapter 6, 7, and 8, and this is a real problem, how come if the gospel is true, I still sin? How come if the gospel is true, I still sin as, well, not quite as much, but nearly as much as I used to? How come if the gospel is true, that particular sin, that I keep praying that God will take from me, and I've been praying that for 20 years, is still there? Is it really true, the gospel? Now, Paul takes that on, and uh, he argues, chapter uh, 6, that the gospel has broken our slavery to sin. He argues, chapter 7, that it's a war to which he concludes, wretched man that I am. And then he breaks out into chapter 8 with a threefold conclusion, halfway through chapter 8. You have been saved at the cross from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and you will be saved from the presence of sin. Do not let your battle with sin rob you of confidence that the gospel is true. 
And he carries on with his theme of confidence in chapters 9 to 11. We're going to tackle these difficult chapters. What about the Jews? Did God get it all wrong? Are we plan B? Are the Jews really God's chosen people? Now that's what's to come, confidence in the gospel. Now, let me turn in the last few minutes to the gospel in a large nutshell. What is the gospel? You know, you could spend a whole series on Romans and not tell everyone what the gospel actually is. What is it? Now, what is the gospel? We could go to a text like Romans, Christ died for my sins. That's the gospel. But it's, it's not more than that, but that is way much more than we might think. Does that make sense? It's not that we're declared forgiven and God marches off somewhere else. God's with us right to the end of eternity. Now, what is the gospel? Marvelous verses, these 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel destroys shame. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? I'm ashamed of the gospel. I've told you this before, that we're about to leave Middleby Street. We failed again. They kind of know I'm a minister. And that's okay, but they don't know much about Jesus from us because I am ashamed to tell them. That's the reality, and I'm sure you feel that shame as well. Why am I ashamed? Why am I ashamed of, the, why am I ashamed of that which will save people from eternal judgment? Why am I? I'm a minister. Why am I ashamed? Why am I? Because I don't believe it works. In my heart of hearts, I don't always believe, subjectively at least, that it's true. I don't believe that my conversation could lead to their eternal life. And when you grasp the gospel in its depth and its width and its height, that shame goes. There's another dimension to being ashamed of the gospel, that I really am a hopeless wretch. You know, it's very shameful for all of us middle-class good people to realize that before a holy God, we are hopeless wretches. And when you come to terms with that, you're no longer ashamed. That doesn't really explain what Paul means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. My hunch is that by the end of the series, I'll still be ashamed of the gospel. And I'm really going to try and tackle that. What is it that makes me, what is it that makes me, as a, a kind of, I'm quite friendly and quite, chatty and gift of the gab maybe and what is it that stops me speaking to everybody I meet about the God what is it why am I ashamed we're going to try and find the answer to that the gospel is a living supernatural power the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believe it's supernatural it achieves salvation and transformation through the word of God the gospel can save anyone, the power of God for salvation to everyone or anyone who believes. Christ came for all people, 
All people. You might think, not me, because I'm not from a Christian background, or not me, I'm not the religious type. Not me, I'm much too bad for this. Lots of people say no to the gospel because they think they're too bad. Lots of people say no to the gospel because they think they're too good. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel saves only those who believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Belief or faith is the only condition on the gospel. The only condition on the gospel is saying, yes, or save me. Or please forgive me. That's it. Is it as simple as that? Yes. So can our seven-year-olds, as Ian said, be converted? Yes. Does a seven-year-old understand sin? Yes. So why can't a 60-year-old who's a managing director of a company see with the eyes of perception of a seven-year-old that they need to say yes because the human heart is hard. The gospel came to the Jew first, then the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. We'll look at that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Or Samuel. Don't tell him I said that. You are going to tell him, aren't you? It's good for him, though. The gospel, and here we slow down just a little bit, and we'll be done in time. The gospel is the perfect righteousness of God revealed in Jesus. Marvelous verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Let me quote from Tim Keller. He says, We can get a pretty good handle on righteousness by thinking about the English word. What does it mean to be right with your company, your government, or another person? It is a positional word. It means to have a good or right standing, to have no debts or liabilities that you owe the other person or organization. You are acceptable to the other party because your record has nothing on it to jeopardize the relationship. The other party has nothing against you. What does that look like in flesh and blood? Who does that look like in flesh and blood? Jesus and only him. It is in Jesus that the righteousness of God is revealed. As a human being, what does it mean to have a right standing with God? It means Jesus. And Paul goes on to speak at length in his letter about Jesus, the man, the righteous man. The righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus in part to show us that we are unrighteous. Every one of us. All are unrighteous and fall short of the glory of God. However good we think we are, and there will be somebody here this morning thinking that they are good enough to gain merit with God. You need to be as good as Jesus, logically. Only that kind of righteousness in a human being 
is able to have fellowship with God. That is what is required. But the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus is not to taunt us. And uh, we might turn to Martin Luther. I'm trying to resist all remembrances of 500 years ago. But Martin Luther thought the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus was there to taunt him. There was the standard. And my life will be a pathetic attempt to try to be like that standard so that God in the end might say, you've done well enough. The righteousness of God revealed in Jesus is not to taunt us. It is, as Paul says in the first five verses of the chapter, revealed in Jesus Christ through whom we have received grace. Received grace. Now, listen up now if you've fallen asleep. The gospel is the perfect righteousness of God revealed in Jesus, provided for us. Jesus came not only to reveal to us, to show us the righteousness of God, but to provide for us the righteousness of God for all have sinned and are justified, that is declared righteous, by the grace of God as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That means someone who bears judgment for us by his blood, by his death, to be received by faith. The gospel is the perfect righteousness of God revealed in Jesus. That is the standard that we need to be reconciled to God, revealed in Him, and He has provided for us. One more step. The gospel is the perfect righteousness of God given to us. Now, I might be splitting hairs. Is there a difference between provided for us and given to us? What I'm trying to convey is that so much more is promised to us than simply the declaration of our forgiveness. We have been given so much more. How much more? The spirit of the living Jesus indwells us. I came across this great uh, quote this week, and it's, I hope it's as profound as I think it is. Christmas time, here's a text we're going to have. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, Jesus came and lived on the earth among humanity. When the word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us had died and was raised and went back to his Father, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, was given to the church. The Spirit of the living Jesus has made his dwelling us. See the difference? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The living word has given his spirit and has made his dwelling us. Righteousness is not simply provided for us. Righteousness is not even given to us. Righteousness is in us because Christ is in us. Christ is living in you. And all the benefits 
of his death and all the robes of his righteousness are in you, on you. And all of that is received by faith permanently and exclusively, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God, is received from faith for faith. Faith is how we receive the gospel, faith alone, faith exclusively, not faith plus our background, our heritage, our character, our actions, our good deeds. Faith alone, faith exclusively. Is it as simple as that, that the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus can be mine simply by faith, by believing? Yes. Faith exclusively and faith permanently. One of the big challenges we take on in Romans is why am I ashamed of the gospel? Another one is why do I not live by faith? Why do I lapse into living to gain merit with God? And then finally, the gospel, when received, results in a new way of life. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I warrant that in this church this morning, there will have been some breakthroughs in our understanding of the gospel. Please, 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 if you are not a Christian, and you are standing in some way thinking that you are too good to be a Christian or too bad to be a Christian, or you have been a religious person all of your life, do not spurn the chance when you see and understand to believe in Jesus. And to all of us who are Christians, let's pray that as we study this great and marvelous letter, that we will really come to deeply understand the gospel and be blessed by it, and to be confident in it, that we might not be ashamed, that we might plant churches with confidence, that we might see God's global mission as our priority. You see, I guess you're with me in that strategy is easy. A deep, deep grasp of the gospel is often elusive. But what a blessing it will bring to us. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we wrestle with these wonderful truths in Romans, you would be our teacher, our comforter, that you would bless us, that you would encourage us, and that you would strengthen us. And we pray, Lord, that Charmer's church life this year will be shaped by the gospel. And we've begun to see, I think, just a little bit of what that means. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.